0: we tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Travelers have returned to Hawaii in large numbers this summer, with one major exception, those coming from Japan. In July, about 4% of the state's overall arrivals came from Japan. Usually, Japanese make up about 20% of visitors. So when will those numbers improve? Well, Ray Tsuchiyama watches the ve- J- Japanese visitor market. He's a local business consultant who's worked with clients in the hospitality industry, and he's also lived and worked in Japan. He sat down last week to talk about Japanese visitors to Hawaii. HPR's Bill Dorman started with a question that many in the hospitality industry are asking.
1: What will it take for Japanese visitors to return to Hawaii in greater numbers than they have so far?
2: I think the question should be switched around. How can the various sectors or parts of the tourism hospitality ecosystem that was operating at 100% in 2019 be revived, rehabilitated, uh, brought back uh, to perform at those levels. So what's the starting point? The starting point is that Waikiki hotels, airlines, uh, the tourist agencies, really must look at their staffing. That is the key here. They have the staff to take care of Japanese tourists in the way that they have been taken care of. As you know, Japanese visitors demand require a higher level of customer service. And that's what I think uh, have to be um, really communicated through a campaign in Japan by various bloggers, vloggers and people who really uh, can write about Hawaii in a good light, in a positive way. Has
1: the hospitality market in Hawaii taken the Japanese for granted?
2: Well, I think uh, in 2019, when everything was uh, working on uh, six cylinders, as we say, mm-hmm. as a car, and reached that two million a year level for Japanese visitors to Hawaii, I think people said, "Wow, we're looking—we're looking at a future of three, five million Japanese tourists, maybe five, ten years uh, in the uh, hands," and I think. Uh, they thought that everything would be okay, that uh, status quo. Mm-hmm. But um, as you know, Waikiki must always be in uh, uh, working better. Uh, we have an aging infrastructure in hotels. We really have to uh, train and keep focusing on a very good vacation experience for the Japanese visitor by the tourism uh, industry in Hawaii. You know, you spoke about the fragility of the
1: ecosystem in in the service industry, particularly boost in tourism numbers from the West Coast. When you look at Japan, if you add in hundreds of thousands of Japanese, then the overall system would be over capacity.
2: Uh, Right now, you are correct that uh, the overwhelming number or 99% of uh, visitors in Waikiki, if you go today, uh, are from the West Coast or primarily from the mainland. Uh, it, that's because uh, six months ago, three months ago, uh, Japanese were not planning to come to Hawaii, so they weren't uh, booking rooms. The, the big uh, Japanese package tour companies weren't buying up large numbers of rooms to sell to their clients and you know, reserve them. That wasn't taking place. So you must have a leeway of six months uh, or more uh, to see that surge in Japanese visitors. In hearing from many in the tourism industry We kept hearing
1: from, I recall in the spring, it was, well, once the summer starts, the Japanese are gonna come in. Well, as the summer continues, more Japanese are going to come, and we haven't seen that. I mean, we mentioned briefly dollar-yen. There's a tremendous cost differential within that, but other factors that may have led
2: to that misinterpretation? Well, I think there is still a great pent-up demand for Mm -hmm. travel uh, among Japanese. Uh, during COVID, there was some travel domestically, and everybody went to Okinawa. <laughs> uh, when South Korea opened up in June, there was a surge of Japanese visitors to, uh, to South Korea, but that kind of died down uh, and, and other parts of Asia. I think uh, also uh, people forget that there's a symbiosis or symbiotic relationship between um, inbound to Japan uh, visitors, which is just about to begin as you know mm-hmm. uh, just beginning and outbound uh, because uh, there are uh, many flights coming into Japan well they must carry people from Japan right. uh, outbound and to Hawaii the West Coast and other parts of North America and so that hasn't taken place yet and airlines go into the black with business travelers and that is not coming to Japan also uh, or uh, or to Hawaii yet I think those are uh, factors. For greater capacity in airlines. Another thing is uh, motivation or mood. and mood. And Hawaii must make a great uh, push, uh, marketing wise. And Japanese are, of course, influenced by the media in terms of, uh, like we just uh, mentioned, uh, the yen depreciation and also about crime and safety in Waikiki. They want to be in a a very safe environment, and they hear things, but I think uh, this must be countered by very good, like I said, blogs, vlogs of influencers in the uh, online community in Japan. You mentioned the the crime and safety and perceptions
1: of that because that for Hawaii has always been part of that special relationship for the
2: Japanese. Do you see a risk in that these days? There was a um, promotion by the mayor mm-hmm. and uh, leading Waikiki uh, hospitality hotel leaders uh, to stress uh, safety uh, in Waikiki, and I think that's a great thing. Uh, we should uh, really emphasize a positive, uh, safe uh, environment in, in Hawaii because that's what uh, Japanese visitors really look uh, look at when they um, buy a ticket to go someplace with their uh, family. A challenging question, but that special relationship between
1: Japan and, and Hawaii, there is such an affinity for Hawaii among so many folks. Any thoughts on having lived both places on
2: uh, what goes into that? Well, there's uh, several factors. You're absolutely right. Uh, there's a uh, sizable uh, Nikkei, or, you know, Japanese immigrant population in Hawaii uh, since the Meiji period. Um, the other one, uh, of, of course, is that uh, uh, since um, even the pre-war period, uh, many Japanese have been interested in, in, in Hawaiian culture. Uh, there are probably 600,000, 700,000 Japanese who studied the hula and, and the Hawaiian music throughout Japan. So there's great affinities uh, towards uh, Hawaii And of course, our tropical climate and um, it's it's easier to get to uh, than to um, uh, longer uh, range places on the west coast. I think those are all um, uh, unique factors why the Japanese uh, like Hawaii. And our our aloha spirit also is is very key in this. That will drive uh, Japanese tourism uh, to Hawaii and I'm very optimistic that that will happen.
1: Anything else that strikes you as a factor that people don't always think about when it comes to Japanese visitors coming to Hawaii?
2: We have to really be sensitive to that uh, uh, yen depreciation factor in tourism. It's not that every family will uh, line up in Louis Vuitton or uh, Tiffany's. And they may be looking for uh, more value-added products, uh, lower cost, uh, and we'll see them going outside of Waikiki. You know, uh, to like I mentioned, to the WalMarts, the Costco's, the Walgreens, uh, even Don Quixote, which is Japanese. Uh, Store uh, a discount store, so we we have to reimagine, and I think that's where. The uh, leadership in hospital and tourism in Hawaii should really do in depth surveys to really uh, focus on what is the daily, you know, uh, 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 four member families, um, hotel, uh, food, uh, meals, uh, transportation, Wh- where are they going? What issues or concerns do they have? And I think that's where Hawaii state and, and the city should really be focusing today. And again, I go back to the question it, rather than waiting for Japanese tourists to come, how can we make it a place that really responds to the interests and desires of Japanese tourists? How can, how can we do that? And how, what do we know of the uh, tourist desires of August or September of 2022? That, that's not of 2019. Ray Tsuchiyama has lived and worked in Japan and Hawaii. Businesses from
1: technology to real estate has advised clients in the hospitality field. Keeps a close eye on the tourism business here in Hawaii, especially as it relates to the Japanese market. Ray, thanks for being with us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: That was HPR's News Director Bill Dorman talking with business consultant Ray Tsuchiyama about the return of the Japanese visitor market to the islands. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
3: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao,
2: Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana, O Mau,
0: O Hawaii. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at a little hidden British history in Honolulu's landscape. The Union Jack, the de facto national flag of the United Kingdom, has been part of Hawaii's flag since the time of King Kamehameha. But there was a brief and bizarre episode when the British flag was flown as Hawaii's own This was the Paulette Affair of 1843. A British naval officer named Lord George Paulette decided to occupy Hawaii in the name of Great Britain and destroy all the existing flags of the kingdom. His occupation ended after Paulette's commander came to Hawaii, relieved Paulette of his duties, and held the Hawaiian flag in his hands as power was transferred back to Kamehameha III, restoring the kingdom. The site of the ceremony became downtown Honolulu's first park and is named for this commander. If you look at its layout from above, the pathways resemble the Union Jack. For today's quiz, can you name the park? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com.
0: who sees the most visitors of all the islands, and the latest progress report on the rollout of a plan to better manage the tourist numbers has just been released online. HTA is looking for community feedback on what's called the DMAP, Destination Action uh, Management Plan. Catherine Orleans is the Oahu destination manager. She says between the city restrictions to limit commercialism at Waimanalo to the federal laws about interactions with threatened or endangered species, a lot more needs to be done to curb the negative impacts of tourism.
5: Compared to the other islands, you know, we're one island chain, but we're so diverse, island by island, and no doubt we have the biggest population the highest number of visitors compared to the other islands but the positive of that is we also generate the most TAT for our state and our counties and it has an enormous impact economically for our communities so it's an opportunity for us to make sure we're doing this correctly going forward pivoting in the right direction for our community and you know also an opportunity for our state and our county to make sure this revenue gets back into programs and infrastructure that can help or improvements that can help benefit our residents and also visitors.
0: Right off the bat, I mean, we have seen the reservation systems work. Not only has the Diamond Head Monument brought in way more money than anybody thought, but it is providing for a better experience, I think, not just for the visitor, but for the local residents who want to take a hike.
5: Right, and residents don't need reservations, just as a reminder. Um, You can still walk in without a reservation, but if you do have out-of-state visitors visiting without a Hawaii ID, they will need advanced reservations ahead of time. And the earlier you make the reservations, the better so you can get that early
0: morning time on the hike where it's a little cooler. And I think they've just adjusted the time where you can uh, make reservations further out.
5: Yes. It used to be when they first rode out, I think it was two weeks out, but now I think it's 30 days out. And so the thing that we're watching and monitoring with the rest of our hotspot list on the Map plan is the impacts of where some of the visitors that may have gone uh, will will be going next so that where that demand may have shifted to areas like Makapu'u or Ka'enna Point for example so just kind of pulsing and making sure that we're working with city and county or DLNR on some of those going forward.
0: You know what would that involve you know as we talk about managing these hotspots I mean reservation systems there too?
5: It would depend Um as you know the reservation systems work at certain areas like Leahi, Hanama Bay but it may not work at other areas like on the North Shore, Lani Akea, and some of the impacts over there. Um, so, really, HTA and the visitor industry, we really want to work with our community members um, to come up with solutions that would work for them and they know their communities best,
0: too. What else can you tell us about the top hotspots and how we're managing it and, and whether that needs tweaking?
5: So, those were the first two, the Leahy and Hanama, that were uh, address in this initial phase making sure the messaging is out there that we're reaching all the visitors so that they're not showing up unannounced without reservation so that they know ahead of time. Other than that you know the impact the negative uh, resident sentiment around transportation and traffic and congestion on our island and how visitors get around and explore. We do have a connected public transportation system and lots of public and private options for visitors to choose from. Um, so really, we are working with the city and county to focus on our goals around social, economic, and environmental goals around transportation, so really working with the city to create a new website that will seek to educate visitors, but also some of our new residents. We have a lot of transient residents on our island, too, compared to other islands. So this uh, project's is getting started, and it will hope to launch by the end of the year uh, with a collaborative effort to change the behavior with transportation that also impacts those hotspot areas.
0: Well, I thought it was really interesting that Kauai, you know, came up with those ideas to deal with the Turo cars, and not to impact yes. the airport parking. And the Turo issue, you know, has been a problem in, in several neighborhoods here on Oahu.
5: Yes, and you know, with the Bill 41 that had passed, that kind of addresses accommodations, but in the bill they also, had included in our county a restriction on parking, where you can't um, use street parking if you're a legal um, vacation rental in residential neighborhoods going forward. So some of the enforcement of illegal rentals also helps to support some of that congestion around the island too.
0: So you talked about you know trails and visiting you know beaches you know like Hanama uh, Bay, but what about waterfalls? And let's say Manoa Falls Trail, because that's one that's very heavily used
5: yes yeah we want to make sure that the visitors are always on a proper state on the alahele trail so getting that message out and you know the behavior when you're on a trail staying on the beach and path and and things like that we're first starting off with all of the responsible messaging um pre and post um arrival so making sure on all touch points in the planning process and as they're venturing around the island uh, we're reaching them with some of this messaging, too, so that they they are also responsible.
0: So how are we getting the technology coordinated, you know, whether it's an app they have to download so they get the messaging? Um, you know, what are we doing early on in their trip?
5: There's the Go Button app. Um, that one we do promote heavily for visitors. And we can also support that with messaging and ping them as they reach around hot spots on the island going forward with. Um, beacons that we'll look to implement in the next phase. And then we're also using geo-targeting on social media with messaging as they're venturing around to places on island that are points of interest for visitors. And we've used DBET data. The HVS, on the HCU's website, there's the Symphony dashboard. Um, so we've pulled data over time to make sure that we're data-driven and implementing these messages where
0: they will actually reach the visitors. So, our listeners may not be familiar with that Symphony dashboard.
5: Oh, yes. That is actually, it's phone data that is tracked and published by DVED. So, as we're moving around, they can see top points of interest, visitors versus residents, and it's tracked and published. So if you were to visit the HT website, it's on there and you can kind of play around. It's
0: very interesting if you're into data like I am. (laughs) So you'll be able to figure out, let's say, the people that go to Kailua Beach Park, how many are residents and how many are out-of-towners?
5: Correct. And also we look at cross points of interest, not only different locations on island, but top points of interest that they may reach on other islands. So if they go to, through Honolulu International Airport, they may also go through Kahului International Airport as a, as a top second,
0: as an example. So as you then start to, to narrow down, like, okay, we're talking waterfalls, if Manoa's too impacted, you know, do you send them over to the Lion Arboretum, you know, in that walk to that hike? Uh, or, you know, how do you manage, let's say, Monowilly Falls or other falls like that? You know How do you keep them off Sacred Falls, which is, you know, closed and dangerous?
5: Right. so sacred points of interest we do not promote at all and, uh, on our end of, of things, and that would be one of them. And now with this identified hot spot list, these are the top points of interest that we're asked by our community to look for solutions to better manage, like you said. And, you know, as we implement that demand shifts to other locations so really listening to our community to see where those impacts are felt the most and using that data to
0: to verify. You know based on the resident survey that just came out recently what other areas are you working on? So a lot
5: of that is making sure that we are educating not only our visitors on, on the actions that are going on but also our residents. So we've been Meeting with community groups like the Rotary Clubs and Lion Clubs on O'ahu at different locations. Since May, we've had a bunch of meetings just to kind of engage and in smaller in-person and sometimes hybrid meetings. And there were service-oriented groups, too. So a lot of the focus going forward out of the pandemic is based on EC's strategic plan and focus of Malama home, of caring for our beloved home. We wanted to reach out to those people that are already doing some of that work and doing some of that. So starting with those groups, we've had great conversations and they were just very surprised to see all the work that we're doing. uh, A lot of people aren't aware of some of this effort um, currently
0: going on. Is there anything else that we need to do, you know, in regard to just vessels, tour groups, going out on boats
5: that is a great point that you bring up there is a lot of need for more enforcement out in the rural areas some illegal tour companies driving people off at places that the laws now have changed out of pandemic that they may not have been aware of so there's going to be a lot of still enforcement that needs to get done and
0: need to work with the city around some of that Mm -hmm. as well so okay so they're just what tour operators that are just setting up shop whether to to, like do surf schools or surf lessons that kind of stuff
5: uh some of them and then some just tour buses what i've heard from some of the north shore neighborhood board members was that they'll drop people off at the beach right away which is not really promote it's just unloading people at Mm -hmm. a place that doesn't really have the capacity to support that so really where where is the better location for visitors to go in those types of situations, but also realizing that the laws have changed. There are certain places where now commercial activity is not allowed. So we're working with our industry partners as well to make sure
0: that they're updated on those changes. Um, Anything else uh, just as as far as hotspots on uh, Oahu's west side? On the west side, uh, there's a lot of offshore
5: hotspots. So some of those federal laws have also changed with wildlife viewing. So you're not supposed to be within so many feet of dolphins and things like that. So really monitoring some of the offshore hotspots at those west side harbors, tracking some of that visitors' data and the impact out there too. And, and the tour companies, making sure they're doing things legally. When I think of our DMAP process, which means no task is too big when done together by all. And this is such a collaborative effort. It takes many different agencies and stakeholders to get these actions implemented. So just want to say I'm thankful and grateful for you having me today and the opportunity to share some of these initiatives that we have underway.
0: That was Oahu Visitors Bureau Destination Manager Catherine Orleans talking with us about the snapshot of how well we are managing the return of tourists to our island hotspots. Look for meetings to get feedback on the Oahu plan later this fall. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about managing tourism on Maui. Reporter Marina Riker joins us today for our reality chat. Good morning, Marina.
3: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, so your story involves the bike tours that come down Haleakalā.
3: Yes, um, and I'm sure that everyone who lives here and even folks who have visited Maui have um, found themselves, if they've gone up to Kula or up country. Um, have found themselves uh, behind some of these bike tours, um, and they we both we have both um, guided and unguided tours here, which means that um, sometimes a group of folks or a group of visitors who sign up for these tours are led by a guide who's familiar with the roads, and then other times um, they're unguided, which means that they are on their own. To navigate these winding roads and the hairpin turns and the the commuter traffic and the school traffic um, and folks trying to get to doctor's offices. Um, So there has been a lot of pressure um, in recent decades for the county council to address this issue and they took a big step last week. Um, that would limit uh, the presence of these tours on some of our roads up country. Yes,
0: yeah, so this was a, a council uh, committee meeting uh, that took this up, but it, it still has to go through the process before it goes to the full council, right?
3: Yes, yes, that's that's correct. The the full council has to vote on it again before it becomes a law. Um, and this is something that they have been discussing. Um, on and off over the last year Um, and and as we reported in the story, um, this is something that previous councils and and county leaders have taken up uh, well over a decade ago. This has kind of been one of those issues that has been a big issue for, for the Maui community for a very long time and this is kind of the first big step in about 15 years to really regulate the industry.
0: Yeah, I think the last time I was there on Maui and I saw the, the cyclists come down, it was like about four years ago, pre-pandemic. Uh, but I know that there had been a crash, a collision, and someone got hurt.
3: Yes, yes, people definitely get hurt. Um, I mean, of course, the, the tour operators will say that uh, that folks get hurt in all sorts of recreational activities, uh, from snorkeling to swimming, um, but... Supporters of limiting these activities have said that, um, well, this is this is an, an activity that the county government actually permits, and they were they did settle a lawsuit actually earlier this year with a visitor who um, was reported to crash into a guardrail, um, and about fifteen years or so ago, I mean, we had a fatality that spurred the county to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars studying this issue. So, I mean, there have been calls to, to regulate this industry for a long time. And I think there are, are there are a lot of folks who are in the community up here who are very happy to see government leaders take action on this.
0: So who's spearheading this effort?
3: Yeah, so this, is, this proposal came from uh, Councilmember Mike Molina. Um, so he was the one who spear, who introduced this proposal. It's been in the works for about a year. Um, but I, this kind of comes at a time where the current county council that we have now has really taken a greater focus examining the community's re- relationship with tourism. So I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing um, county leaders take action now. I mean, last week, the proposal passed out of the committee unanimously. Um, and, and we'll see what happens when it goes in front of the whole council. But this is just something that uh, that community members have been asking their government leaders to do something about for a long time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know here on Oahu, I occasionally see uh, groups of cyclists go down, you know, uh and those roads are very narrow, lots of, you know, switchbacks. Uh, so, but it is kind of spooky whether you're behind them or you see them coming down. You're like, ugh. <laughs>
3: Yeah. So this proposal would um, it would also raise the, the age of the folks who or raise a, the minimum age for people to be able to go on these tours. So I think that's a that's a that's a complaint that you hear uh, frequently here is that, OK, you actually see children uh, going down the roads and sometimes they swerve out of the bike lanes. And a lot of the times there aren't bike lanes at all. So this is um, that's been I think a lot of folks are going to be happy to see some regulation on this.
0: Okay, well, we'll see uh, uh, how this progresses. But thank you so much, Marina. Thank you. That was reporter Marina Riker with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org.
4: Support for HPR comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, offering dine-in and takeout daily at its restaurants in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kane'ohe. Catering available for business meetings and events, rubytuesdayhawaii.com.
6: September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show to learn about the latest in the screening, diagnosis, and treatment of prostate cancer from a few folks who have experienced this firsthand. That's today at 6.30 on The Body
0: Show. Well, the dust is yet to settle over the sudden departure of the head of the city's Department of Planning and Permitting and its innovation strategists, both of whom were preparing for the rollout of a vacation rental ordinance next month. HVR's Casey Harlow is here to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning.
7: Yes. Uh, so today's story basically focusing on these uh, sudden uh, resignations that happened last week. Uh, interviewed uh, Council Chair Tommy Waters, who pretty much emphasize that it's coming at a bad time, uh, especially with the vacation rental uh, law going into effect next month. And also, you know, there's a lot of other things with uh, it's been speculated that the permitting process has been an issue and has gotten worse uh, with several changes. And I've also spoken with a couple architects here in Honolulu about it, and they pretty much uh, confirmed that, yeah, it's pretty bad here. And You know, if you're kind of wanting to guess, like, how long these uh, permitting processes have uh, gotten, um, it was uh, said at a Kapolei Town Hall meeting uh, that it took anywhere between six months and two years uh, to get a permit approved, either commercial or residential. And even Council Chair Tommy Waters has been hearing this from his constituents.
8: It was taking many of my constituents, which includes hotels in Waikiki, were complaining that the permits weren't being issued for over a year. And that's a huge issue, not just for local residents, but for businesses trying to upgrade their facilities. And I'm sure that played into it.
7: And we even uh, hear from Katie McNeil, who's a principal architect at a local design firm, G70. Uh, she pretty much uh, said that the process itself hasn't really changed all that much. It's more at the front end of things. Uh, They specifically getting building application or building permit application number. Uh, So this is, you know, a pretty simple thing that in the past was easy to get. And then you go through the review process and she likens it to, you know, standing in line at a movie theater.
6: If it's a popular movie, it'll take you a half hour to wait in line to get into that movie. One that has been out for a bit, you can arrive and see the movie. The length of the movie hasn't changed at all, but your time in the process has. So the review is is being delayed because we haven't been accepted into the movie theater.
7: And so, you know, a lot of these architects are saying, because they don't know uh, how how much time exactly they will get to get their um, permit number, uh, they, there's a lot of uncertainty and trying to explain that to their clients, you know, that could spook them a little bit costing uh, everybody money at this point point. and You know uh, Todd Hassler who is a vice president of the Honolulu chapter of AIA the American Institute of Architects And he's also a partner at uh, Peter Vincent Architects um, You know said pretty much says, you know time is money and this is his take on the per- permitting process
8: when we talk to potential clients and they inevitably, you know, want to know the schedule and want to kind of set expectations for their project. It's hard for us to really educate them on the process and get them to really understand the uncertainty of these time frames. So that's certainly been a little bit of a challenge on the front end of projects.
7: And um a report from well, when it- comes to these delays, right? It usually costs money. And UHERO has actually, uh, the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, released a report earlier this year uh, kind of uh, looking at the challenges to uh, affordable housing. And they found that government regulation generally ha- has a role to play. And in Hawaii, it definitely has a significant impact, especially with the limited supply and the high demand. And so when developing a, a single-family home and you have to go through this permitting process, usually will get passed on to the customer for uh, the delay and for the costs associated with it. And Hassler pretty much you know, explains it in this way.
8: Time is money. So the more delays we have on projects, higher the construction costs. So we're really having difficulty having contractors commit to pricing for more than a few weeks you know based on the recent inflation so you know with these delays the construction costs are kind of unknown until we actually have the permit in hand so it, it's a little bit of a shell game as far as establishing a realistic construction cost based on the uncertainty of when a project can actually start
0: and you know when we uh, uh, heard the news about uh, uh, Dinuchiyama and um, uh, uh, Danette Maruyama stepping down. You know, I, I know there have been some discussion about some big construction industry uh, meeting with the administration. You know, and, and so yeah, we're waiting to to see what's going to come out of that.
7: Mm-hmm. And even AIA had uh, regular ske- regularly scheduled meetings with uh, the former director uh, Dean Uchida, uh to discuss, you know, their experiences and what can be improved and things like that. And so Hassler said that he would like maybe the new director to have that s- form of communication with them. And there's also some suggestions that they made to try to speed up the process, such as third-party reviewers and uh, also having a checklist that DPP uh, officials can follow and that they can actually go through. and. Obviously, there is also the uh, challenge of unfilled vacancies.
0: Right, yeah, a huge, huge number of vacancies in the department. Concerns about, yeah, uh, not doing reviews on those third-party applications. And there's a backlog with solar projects. So, yeah, just lots of problems with that department, and hopefully they can get on the right track. Exactly. But thank you so much, Thanks. Casey. We have been talking uh, to H.P.A.R.'s Casey Harlow about what happens next at the Department of Planning and Permitting as it moves into a critical phase with a shake-up of two of its key administrators. You can read more of his stories on our website, whitepublicradio.org. <laughs> In today's Backyard Quiz, we remembered a 19th century British admiral who found back in uh, 1843 that an officer under his command had exceeded his authority. It's not every day that a naval captain seizes control of a neutral nation, but that's exactly what Captain George Paulette did. His bizarre six-month occupation of the islands triggered by a local land dispute involving British subjects saw the Union Jack raised over the islands and the destruction of Hawaiian flags. The so-called Paulette affair ended when Paulette's commanding officer sailed to Oahu on his flagship, the HMS Dublin. He met with Kamehameha III and told him that Great Britain had no intention of taking over his kingdom. The kingdom of Hawaii's flag was raised once again in a Honolulu park whose pathways were laid out in the shape of a Union Jack. The park. Thomas Square was the answer to today's backyard quiz. It was named in honor of Rear Admiral Richard Darton Thomas. And congrats to our winner, uh, Sarah Garbett from Maui, originally uh, from England. Uh, she's been living here 40 years and she knew the answer. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to Talk Back at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. <laughs>
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaii Island Community Health Center, providing medical, dental, and behavioral health care services island-wide. Learn more at hicommunityhealthcenter.org.
2: On this week's On the Media, as the legal troubles of former President Trump mount, We look at how news outlets in other countries have covered the alleged crimes of their leaders.
4: It's good in a democracy to occasionally kick the tires and try to figure out, okay, well, where are their weaknesses?
2: From Israel to Italy and back home again on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening
5: at 7, following The Body Show.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Furniture Plus Design. Designing collaborative environments, extending the office to the home workspace, integrating technology with ergonomic functionality and comfort. FurniturePlusDesign.com.
0: September 11th marked the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Iniki's landfall on Kauai. It was the costliest natural disaster in our history of our state, causing over $3 billion in damage across the Garden Isle and West Oahu. It took six lives. On that day, three commercial fishermen were returning from a successful fishing trip off Niihau when their boat was caught in the hurricane. Two of the men, Masahatanaka and Nobuo Saito, were lost at sea. But the third man, 50-year-old Bob Ward, survived.
8: When the storm hit, Ward and two others had been eight days at sea in a 60-foot fishing boat
1: struggling to get back. It went down five miles off Kauai. The wind was so powerful, I, I remember uh, saying something about 140 knots, and, and the wind just, just blew us over in this trough and forced us down. The engine had died, and the water started rushing in there, and I, I looked at him and I said, we better go. You knew you were going down? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I knew that boat was
0: gone. That was an interview Ward gave NBC back in 1992. He passed away in 2019. In the conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with his daughter, Tiffany Ward, to recount her late father's harrowing experience. It's
6: hard to believe it's been 30 years. He called me before they left on that trip. It was three of them, Masa, Nobu, and my father. It was actually Masa's boat. My dad and Masa were good friends for seven years. They were they were boatmen, you know, they sailed together. And then Masa kind of took an early retirement and bought a fishing boat and they refurbished it. And this was their third fishing trip. And he called me and he said, hey, we're heading to Ni'ihau. We'll be back in two weeks. And I said, okay, great. Call me when you get back. And they went up to Ni'ihau. And in one week, they caught a whole boatload full of ono. They were coming back early. And they were heading back to Honolulu. They were south of Kauai when they got the weather facts saying that they were in the path. And there was no way they could outrun run it. The boat was too heavy. So they just started preparing for it. And everything went wrong. The boat was taking water, and there's a life raft on the boat that's in a canister. And when the canister submerges, the life raft inflates. But the wind was so strong it just ripped it out to sea. And then there was a beacon, an EFRB satellite beacon that rolled off the boat into the ocean. And then there was then the captain dove down to the side of the boat where all of the life jackets were tied, and he got knocked around and lost his knife. So everything failed. And then there was a brine tank that they had bought right before that trip. It's a fiberglass tank, about six feet long, that you, when you catch the fish, you coat it in brine, and then you pack it on ice. Well, that tank had broken loose, and it was about 100 yards out in the ocean. And Masa told my dad, Bob, get the tank. So my dad kicked off his boots all he had on was shorts and he swam about 100 yards out to the tank a little while later the other two join him now the winds are just crazy at this point and they're all clinging to this tank and then all of a sudden everything gets calm and the boat the mass of the boat writes itself the boat submerged but the mass goes up mm-hmm. and masa says let's go back and you wait here bob the other two swam back to the boat to I'm guessing get the life jackets, but the winds kicked up again, and my dad said the waves were taking him like two stories high and slamming him down. He said he could hear them, you know, motioning like come, come. But he said that there was no way he could maneuver the tank back, and he made a split decision, you know, do I hold on or swim back to that sinking boat? And he held on, and and that was his lifeline and they never found the boat. He saw him twice up on the wave. Mm -hmm. The boat was never found and the two men were gone and they were the only sons of Japanese families. Really sad. But the hurricane then passed. It was a Friday and it passed at sunset. And my father knew nobody was coming out through the night to search for him. So he knew he had to survive through the night. And that's where the story gets really good because he describes the freezing, freezing cold. He's having hallucinations. He feels things touching him in the water and, and he's just bargaining with the Lord, you know, and he, he, he made it through the 20 hours, but I'll tell you, he was, he had hypothermia and he, when the Coast Guard found him, there was a sharp trailing him. he was close to the end. Yeah. So quite a harrowing story, but my father was in real good shape. He was 50 years old at the time. He would jump rope an hour a day. He had a lot of muscle mass and a strong mind. All of that really combined to save his life.
9: When the winds calmed down, that was the eye, right? That was the eye passing right, over them. Did right. he say kind of how long that calmness lasted?
6: You know, that's a good question. Even if you read the book, I don't think there's a good indication of that. Mm-hmm. But if figure they're a hundred yards off from the boat and they're clinging out there, and the boat. When the boat rights itself and the other two swim back, I mean, that would, I'm thinking that would take at least 15, 20 minutes, yeah. maybe. Yeah. That's my guess.
9: And how did the Coast Guard know to go look for somebody or was it kind of oh, just yeah, a that's, blanket search? That's surf? a good
6: question. Yeah. Well, Moss's wife lived in Kai at the time. I think she was reaching out to Port authority and Coast Guard trying to find out what, she could about where they were yeah see but we thought they were off of me house so I remember my brother was living in LA at the time and he called me here in Honolulu and he said hey isn't dad out there and I said oh he's off of me house. don't worry mm-hmm. but I was so wrong <laughs> 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 they were right dead in the path the way that we found out that the boat had gone down was the next morning when the Coast Guard did pick my father up they dropped him at Wilcox Hospital, and I think my dad must have told them, and then they contacted Moss's wife, mm-hmm. and she called me to tell me the Coast Guard has picked your father up, and the other, my husband and Nobu are missing, and they're searching for the boat. So, oh, I'm sorry, I get emotional just remembering that <laughs> that oh, call. Well, <laughs> oh,
9: that's a that's a very emotional moment. Yeah. yeah. Do you, Do you remember what his state was like when you first saw him after the rescue?
6: Oh. <laughs> It's kind of a funny story. Well, absolutely no connection to the island. I mean, everything was cut off. There was no power. And I remember that was, I got the call Saturday from Moss's wife that he, the boat, they were searching for the boat, Moss and Nobu. And I knew my father was at Wilcox Hospital, so there's nobody I can call. And so I ended up calling KSSK to ask them if they had like, a ham radio, mm-hmm. any way to connect with somebody that might be on Kauai. And they were like, Oh, that was your dad. Can you talk about it? So they put me live talking about it. And then the next morning, I walked down my driveway and picked up the Sunday paper. And my dad's picture was on the front page and it said, 50 year old Kauai fisherman picked it, which he wasn't from Kauai, but mm-hmm. they said, you know, rescued from the ocean. And then it told about what he had shared but still i could not call him and it was funny because when kssk put me live on the radio there was this lady this little japanese lady raking her yard in waimea and she's listening to the story and she lives near wilcox hospital she goes right into my dad's room and she says i just heard your daughter on the radio (laughs) (laughs) and she talks with my father just the sweetest lady And she finds out that my dad, all he has is his shorts. He's lost everything, you know, his ID, his money, his wallet, everything's gone. She goes home. She puts together this little bitty bag, aloha shirt, rubber slippers, a hairbrush, a toothbrush, and an envelope with money and brings it to him. I mean, if that's not aloha.
9: (laughs) That's so sweet of her to do. I love that. I know. Uh, what a what a story. So after your dad gets rescued, was he the first person to think that he ought to write a book about it? Or was it, did it take some time for him to come around to the idea? Yeah, he
6: did. A lot of people were telling him, you should write a book. Mm-hmm. But my father's not a writer, you know. <laughs> he was a laborer, an official man. I mean, he... If you're interested in reading the book, it's an interesting story, but just keep in mind, he's not a writer, you know, and he self-published it six years after the incident happened. But there's pictures and and it's it's a good read.
9: You know, anybody who undergoes what is essentially a near-death event would have needed some time to process what happened. Did writing the book, was that part of that process of kind of coming to terms with what he went through? I'm
6: sure... It was, you know, my father had a lot of challenges in his life. At a young age, he was diagnosed with macular degeneration, and so he was legally blind. And when I grew up, you know, he never drove a car. He rode a bike to work, and he was a strong man, so he did a lot of physical, hard labor jobs. But as he got older, he lost his sight completely. But I don't think anybody could be faced with that kind of death you know, on that scale and not be affected. Yeah. And I know he was out there bargaining with the Lord. Yeah. And and afterwards, he became much more religious and he was humbled. And he believed that the Lord pulled him through it to be of service to others. Mm-hmm. And he really changed a lot. Like, you know, in his later years, he was going blind, but he volunteered for the Hawaii Food Bank for seven years, unloading big crates and boxes and handing food out. And he he did some talks at churches and Yeah, it it totally affected him in a a really positive way. And when he was dying, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer in 2019. And I remember asking him when he was dying, you know, I said, Dad, you always give me good advice. What's your last advice to me? And he said, just do for others and don't expect anything in return. And then when I asked him what he wanted done with his body, he said, take my ashes to see my friends are waiting for me.
0: That was Tiffany Ward, daughter of Hurricane Eniki survivor Bob Ward. She was talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. A limited number of Ward's book about his experience entitled Hurricane Eniki and I will be available online with proceeds going toward the Red Cross to benefit future disaster victims. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. that's it for us today tomorrow we hear how the counties are dealing with the rush of applications for gun permits what's been your experience Have you applied for one share your story with us caller talk back line 808-792-8217 miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today all of our shows are archived find them on the conversation page at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz we'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation